So we're coming down to the end of the line of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus's, in three chapters, concise, visionary manifesto for life. I mean, everything he says is really God's vision for our life. But I love the Sermon on the Mount on how you can take it as a unit, as a whole, and it is one of the most comprehensive, it is the most, let's be careful, it's the most comprehensive worldview you could find anywhere, any philosopher, any religion, any ideas, any professor, no. Look to the Sermon on the Mount. The wisdom, the truth, the beauty on the lips of Jesus as the vision for the abundant life that God made us for. And we're coming down to the end of it. And there is an eternally striking phrase that is the last line in the body of the Sermon on the Mount. The next little line or the last two lines in the Sermon on the Mount are Jesus' altar call, so to speak, his response time, his action plan. So what we're looking at today is literally the last line in his sermon, so to speak, before he kind of says, like, okay, so here's our altar call. So think about that. The last line in Jesus' visionary manifesto for what life is all about is this. I never knew you, so depart from me. Let that sink in. The closing line in the body of Jesus' visionary manifesto for life is about one crucial reality, knowing God. I believe this is not a coincidence whatsoever. (laughs) Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with the wisdom of all of heaven, Jesus concludes with this theme because knowing God is the essence of what his entire vision for life is about and therefore an extension of what our life is about, our very purpose for existence is quite simply knowing God. And especially, let's step back for a moment, especially for those who have been in church for a long time, knowing God. Just contemplate that phrase. Think about that. Knowing God. Like, what an absolutely audacious notion. I mean, to us at this point, following Jesus, it's the point of life. But I like stepping back sometimes. My wife and I enjoy listening to various podcasts about life, science, health, I watched one last night. It was so beautiful. It's one of our favorite neuroscientists. And he's just recently publicly come out with a faith in God that he is praying to God. And he's a a professor at Stanford. He's been influenced by the head of the neuroscience department at Stanford, who is a outspoken Christian, believe it or not. And so this man's testimony of life has been influential. And so he is now, in his 40s, started to pray 
and come out, come out of the closet <laughs> as a scientist that he actually believes God is real. But what I absolutely love about it is that there is a certain fear of God in the, way, in the healthy way, a holiness, a reverence, an awe that sometimes if you've been around the church so long, too long, it can, we can take it for granted. Oh, knowing God, yeah, knowing God, knowing God. And it's like, no, wait a second. Knowing God. Like we should have a trembling at that very notion. And I, so I love seeing these atheist scientists when they make their journey to knowing God because there's this appropriate, like, reverence of the audacity of what just came out of their mouth that we can know God. It's beautiful. And I would assert to you <laughs> that what they're getting at in the beautiful, healthy, holy fear of God is that if it's true, that God can be known and that this knowing is real, it's personal, it's a relationship, then that discovery, <laughs> that's, the, that's the soup. I mean, he's a scientist. He tries to search for truth and he's recognizing, uh, oh man, I loved him confessing, saying like all of this knowledge of science didn't get me there. I needed more. I just needed to come and say, I can't do it, God. It was so cool. But if God can be known, I mean, this, that's the supreme discovery of humanity. It's the highest truth to be contemplated, the greatest news to be shared, and truly the noblest pursuit that we could possibly have. And I would assert to you that this is what Jesus is teaching in the entire Sermon on the Mount, his entire, everything he preached, but in this visionary manifesto, everything he's doing is trying to propel, everything he is saying is an attempt to propel us toward knowing God more. This is who God is. This is how God wants to be known. And in many ways, I believe he finishes the Sermon on the Mount with, in a sense, a harsh reminder, a challenge, because he's saying it's a warning, essentially, that if by this point in the Sermon on the Mount, if by this point in my visionary manifesto for life, you've missed the point that this is all about knowing God, then you have missed the entire point. And you're missing the point of your existence. Your very purpose for life is to know God. Let's look at this whole little thought process or this, this three-sentence teaching of Jesus together. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Remember, the last line in the body of his message. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, but I never knew you. So depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To put all of that in a positive, simple assertion, Jesus is saying God's will for your life is utterly simple that you know him. These are the closing words of the Sermon on the Mount for a reason. God's will is that we know him. And we could describe it with a variety of language and it's all over the Bible, all sorts of relational imagery to walk with him, to talk with him, to be with him, to listen to him, to live with him, to grow in intimacy with him, that he's our husband and our father and the warrior and the provider and the healer and all of these various images are relational pictures so that the God of the universe can be known to us through the revelation of his Holy Spirit. But Jesus is giving a frank warning here that any good works that we might do in life, good things, anything good, even all the way up to the most mighty works that bear the name of Jesus, if they're not coming out of the simple overflow of knowing him, they are meaningless to Jesus. We are outside of God's will. We are missing the mark of God's will, Jesus says. The word will is a whew, beautiful one that Jesus uses here. It's the word thalema. It carries a very clear nuance, listen to this, of intention and desire. Contrast that for a moment of what we typically think of as God's will and how it's commonly used in the church. If we say God's will is such and such, many conceive of that as a predestined course of action that cannot be stopped. Well, if it's God's will, who's going to get in the way in that? That's the mindset, right? That is not at all the sense of this word. This word has a sense of pregnant with possibility. It's a hoped-for intention. It's a desire on behalf of one toward the other. It's even used regularly as describing one who is wishing for something. This is God's will is that you would know him. Your created God's intention in creating you and the desire that's flowing out of him is that you would know him. This understanding of God's will to me is, is breathtakingly beautiful. To think that the God of the universe genuinely hopes for desires, has real desire 
that I would enter into a relationship with him to know and be known. I mean, that should get us back to that kind of fumbling and bumbling scientist that's in total reverence and awe of the reality of God existing and desiring to know you and for you to know him. This is worthy of of long, slow, intentional, fear of God, reverent reflection because it opens this whole new world of, of beauty about what this relationship is intended to be like that the God of the universe has a genuine desire to know me, to interact with me, to be personal, powerful, and present with me. Could that be real? Yes. That is Jesus's, I would assert, entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. It is built on that foundational idea that you can understand Jesus's message of the Sermon on the Mount in summary, being this, that God is pursuing you. God wants to know you. God wants you to know him. I mean, if we believe who Jesus says he is, which we do around here, (laughs) he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, and the Sermon on the Mount is an extension of that. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the truth of the Father. So everything he has said is God in the flesh pursuing, teaching, revealing to humanity that God wants to be known by you. God wants you to know him. And thus... Jesus has that strong warning at the end. That if life is not centered on knowing God, then we are missing the mark of God's will. We are missing the very purpose for which we exist. So let it be clear from the lips of Jesus, what is your purpose for existence? To know God. The word no is also a fun one. It has some provocative and powerful nuances. It means to understand, which we kind of grab that one, but we also get it a little bit too heady. We'll talk about that in a moment. To understand, to experience with all of the senses and makes you blush a little bit, but one of the clear nuances of this word is to have intercourse with. Don't get thrown off by that last one. But is not throughout the Bible, is it not affirmed that genuine physical intimacy between a husband and wife in the context of holy matrimony is not one of, if not the highest form, the consummation of knowing that humans can experience the intimacy involved? And I'm not saying in any way the Bible paints a picture that our relationship with God is going to be sexual. It's not, but the, it's an analogy, analogous. There is meant to be an analogous level of intimacy that knowing God, the closeness that is possible 
for us with God is greater than we possibly imagined. Because there's no way that anything on this earth is greater than what we're made for in heaven. So the husband and wife intimacy is but a shadow of the intimacy we are made for with God. And it's not like this is not without precedent in the Bible. God calls himself our husband in the Bible. All of eternity is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we are the bride of Christ. In summary, this word to know is experiential. That's the key. In contrast to the Western mindset that often conceives, kind of post-enlightenment Western mindset conceives of knowing in, at times as strictly intellectual information. In the biblical sense, the information we have in our mind, the truth, absolutely matters, but it's not limited to that. Jesus explained it like this, that, you know, essentially in theory, we could have all sorts of truths about God in our minds and still not know God at all. What does the book of James say? That like the, the demons know all of the scriptures? They don't know God. At all. That's why Jesus says, You can honor me with your lips, but your heart can be far from me. God wants knowing to be experiential. It's a knowing with our entire, you could say, integrated being our heart, mind, and spirit, our will, our senses, our emotions. It's everything. And it certainly has to be more than, it cannot just be information. It is an experiential knowing. Let me tell a little story that took my wife and I down this road that changed our life forever. And what it has put in us is a fire in our belly with an utter deep conviction that our relationship with God will never, should never get boring. If it is, as my kids would say, that's a you problem. <laughs> if God seems boring, that's on me. So when I was a freshman in college, I experienced, as many young people do, a, a little bit of a kind of existential crisis. You know, you're, you have an angst to find your purpose for existence at that age, which is good and actually very normal in the developmental cycle of, of how God's wired and created us. I definitely had a genuine faith at the time through what I would say were a number of true encounters with Jesus in my youth, in my childhood, thanks to many different people in my life, my parents, church, school, etc. But in this young existential angst, I knew I wasn't satisfied. There was kind of like, what's the more? You know, kind of the famous soul cry in one of Bono's holy anthems, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Let's all sing now. That song was written as the ask, seek, knock. I want more, Lord. I've tasted, I believe in the kingdom, but I need more. So that's what I was feeling. So I shared this angst with a mentor. 
how I was kind of feeling, it's like, well, is this like one foot in the world, one foot in God? I don't know. I'm trying to say, I'm saying no to all these, you know, college temptations of the world and the drinking and the girls and these things, but I'm saying yes to God. But it's like, but it's like, I'm unsatisfied. It's like, my heart's divided. What's going on? And my mentor at the time, I believe had a prophetic word. He says, there's a Bible verse coming to mind that I feel like is, is for you right now. Psalm 34, 8. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. And his, those words, his words, God's words, hit me in one of those moments of encounter that forever marked my life, forever marked the trajectory of my life. It was like it was that branding iron, that hot searing onto my soul of like, this is who God is. This is what it means to know God. It awakened in me and my wife. We were together on this journey from that time with this single unquenchable fire in our life to experientially know God. The words of this psalm resonated so deeply because they were exactly what I was looking for. Exactly what I had seen lacking so many times growing up in and around the church Christian world my whole life. Where I had seen it and felt a certain emptiness of, of people, myself at times, just going through the motions, saying the right things with a disconnected heart, having the information in my mind, but it was not real, having way more knowledge about God than a true knowing of God. Doing the outward actions of all the churchy stuff. But not from a place of overflow from genuine experiential encounter. And so to me, the revelation that God seared on my soul was right here in these simple words. And let me pause for a second and say, there are verses like this all over the Bible that talk about the sensory encounters of God. That's why every single image of God that is painted, every single name of God that is given is experiential. It's things that we can know in a way that our entire being can relate, can be relational with God. So look for it throughout God's word. Look for the way God is described that is an encounter. It's an experience. It's not meant to be just a little bit of mental information that we go, hmm, that's kind of cool, and we tuck it back there in our quote-unquote knowledge about God over and over. I mean, it includes that. We have to have the right information, the right truth, but it is over and over meant to be encountered, experienced, tasted, seen. 
And so for me, right here, these simple words from God were for my life the antidote to hypocritical, boring, lifeless, powerless Christianity. Because if you taste and see that the Lord is good, it's undeniable. It's like nobody tastes and see your mom's favorite brownie and then say, nope, don't know what that's about. That's how real God wants to, to be to you. It's, it's an undeniable experience, right? Like when you have tasted and seen something, there is no one on the planet that can take that away from you, that can reason you out of that experience, that, that can argue with you that no, you, just, you didn't just have a real encounter. It's fake, it's in your mind, it's not real. When you taste and see, and that's just this metaphor for this kind of whole being, heart, soul, mind, strength, will, emotion, senses. When you encounter God experientially, as you're made to do, it is the most real thing that exists. An irrefutable experience, you could say. Beautifully, this knowing God is not only the summary of Jesus' vision in the Sermon on the Mount for what life's all about, it is absolutely the key thread of the good news of what life's all about from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. So look for it. You could see it in that beautiful image, picture of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There's the picture that's experiential. God wants to walk with you. You are made to walk with God. That's the picture. It's experiential. That's a relatable picture of life when you know someone, when you're having fellowship with someone, when you're together, when you're with them, when you have intimacy, you're on a walk together in the garden. Now, do I believe that actually happened? Yes. But it's bigger than that. It's meant to be the picture of the pain of sin is now threatening to separate that intimacy where we had fellowship with God, we're made to walk with him, to be with him in an utterly shocking reality that the God of the universe comes down from heaven somehow each day in the cool of the day to walk with humanity. That's the picture of experiential intimacy with God. And when sin enters in the world, it breaks that to now we want to go hide from God and so on fig leaves because we're ashamed. We don't want to be honest, real, open, vulnerable, exposed, and just walk with him in total freedom. But Christ restores that 
fellowship with God in all our nakedness without shame because of Christ. Jesus says eternal life is simply knowing God and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. There it is. John 17, 3. Jesus is actually praying this. Do you want to know what's on Jesus' heart for you? What is his will? What is his desire? What does he burn with? What is his wish, so to speak? Don't take that too far. But that's what the word means. What is his hoped for outcome that he prays for you about? One thing, (laughs) that you would know God. And then as we move into eternity, the consummation of all things, the beginning of forever is described like this, as the new heavens and new earth comes down to become our now permanent, eternal reality. Described like this, Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place, the living place. Tabernacle actually is the Greek word, which is crazy because think about how this whole, the whole history of God's people and how God tabernacled with them. What's the whole point of that? Knowing him experientially. And then it was built into more of that permanent temple. But it's the same idea that God's presence would be with them. And you know, the book of John, when it describes the incarnation, it says he incarnated and, and dwelt among us. It's the same word. It's literally he tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent of his presence among us. It's the same thing. God's presence with us is what life's about. And then it goes on to eternity and says, and God's will has not changed. God's intention, God's design, God's desire is fulfilled finally. And for all eternity, it's pretty simple. God dwells with his people. Therefore, all of life all the way into eternity (laughs) is at its essence about knowing God. And I want to close with just an encouragement, a challenge to us that there is in this purpose for our existence beautiful freedom, creativity, adventure to know the God of the universe Can you think of something higher? Of all the pursuits, of all the pleasures, of all the adventures, of all the quests that you can imagine yourself embarking on, what could be better than the journey of growing in a real relationship with God Almighty? This gives us permanent purpose. If you at any point wake up or catch yourself feeling, what is my purpose? 
Here it is, the answer at the utter foundation in the deepest recesses of your soul and the reality of the universe. It's very simple to know God. You have permanent purpose. That was God's intention, his will from eternity past, and it is God's will and our future for eternity future. So we get to wake up each day, I believe, with this permanent purpose and therefore a fresh sense of wonder, of excitement, of exploration, that everything we do today, if and when we're stewarding God's will for our lives well, everything we do today is to somehow come under our divine purpose of knowing God. I believe, therefore, God's will is so like a romance, get creative. Like my dad likes to say, I pointed to him because he's in that little camera over there. Hi, dad. He's stuck in there. <laughs> we bless you to come out of the camera and home. My dad loves to say, never stop dating your wife. Amen. I actually read that in the newspaper yesterday, too. So between my dad and the newspaper, it must be a good idea. I'm going to try it, babe. Guess what? Good news is coming your way. But if I would do that for my wife, why not God? It's this, our relationship with God is described in romantic language all throughout the Bible. But I love, here's the freedom. Get creative. Enjoy your freedom. Make it an adventure. There are infinite ways to encounter and experience God. So seek him. Is that not a biblical idea? Seek him. Ask him. Knock. Explore. Ask for the Holy Spirit to awaken you to an awareness of his presence in greater measure than you currently have. With childlike wonder, expect, this is the big one, expect that you have an infinite number of things that you have yet to discover about God. That's the whole mindset of even dating your spouse. It's like, yeah, as well as you know them, if you put some thought and creativity into it, they are actually an amazingly complex person that for the rest of your life on earth, you can continue to get to know them better and increase in that oneness that God designed. So if that's a fact for God's design for marriage, how much more? in your relationship with him that is going to take an eternity for you to get to know the fullness of who God is. So that's plenty for this life. So I believe we have the privilege now to then expect that God is the most exciting, interesting, majestic, beautiful engaging, captivating, powerful, wonderful, awe-inspiring person, being, in existence. So there's no way that God and our relationship with God, our life, our purpose for existence should be same old, same old. 
don't say that around me. I'll give you the stink eye. I hate that phrase. That's a you problem. If God's boring, it's a you problem. I say that with all the love of Jesus. I hate this is much nicer than Jesus. I said it's a you problem. Jesus said, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. It's all about knowing him and that, wow, is a great privilege. Looking at the universe in all of its glorious creativity, complexity, beauty, order, and the creation itself is just a shadow of the glory of the creator. So there is nothing existing in God that would bore our soul. He is the abundant life. If we are bored, let's say, turn, flip it around and just say, you know what? I'm going to let that put a fire in my belly that that means there's just so much more of him that I have yet to experientially encounter. Because God's will for my life is that I would encounter him as the abundant life that I would have life abundantly in this life, not because all of the circumstances are easy and comfortable and exactly how I want them to be, but because I am connected relationally to the eternal source of abundance. And the more I get to know him, the more this abundance overflows out of me. So as we close the Sermon on the Mount, we are once again given that invitation of Jesus to build your abundant life. And if you only remember one thing from all four you know, months, five months of messages, to build your abundant life is quite simply to passionately seek knowing God through Jesus Christ. It's the very purpose for our existence. I'll take a breath, have my wife come up, come on up and give a word and close our time. Biblical repentance means to change our minds. It means to line up with God's heart, God's ways, his desires, and his way of doing things. It's not guilt. It's not shame. In fact, he didn't come to condemn the world. So actually, it's not our right to condemn ourselves if he's not doing it. Right? And I, I feel this power, almost this potency, this pregnant power in what Casey's sharing this morning. And I want to read John 17, 3 again, but I'm going to read the verse before that because I think there's more revelation that God wants to give our hearts in mindsets that have become truth 
in our Christian culture in America, but they're not actually God's truth. What was that verse you gave me yesterday about the, um, you know, the traditions of man? Yes. Can you say it? The verse Jesus mentioned, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me because you obey the traditions of man instead of the word of God. And he was speaking to those who were supposed to be followers of God, and we need to be on fire to know the truth of who God is and to sift that away from what our culture has told us that it means, but to hear it straight from him. And so with those eyes, with the Ephesians 1, the spirit of revelation opening the eyes of our hearts to know the goodness of God and all that he has called us to. I want to read John 17 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I just felt this revelation from God's spirit and a repentance. We have this idea that where it says, You've given him authority to give eternal life to all all you have given to him. We have this idea of getting saved that it's an event, it's not. It's a continuous knowing. And we know that because of the end of Matthew 7, 21 to 23, that he says, hey, if you do all of these works in my name, which you would think if they're gonna prophesy and they're gonna cast out demons in Jesus' name, that they wouldn't be separate from him. But it's like the burning fire within the absolute purpose of our existence is knowing him. And there's a repentance needed. Eternal life is not a one-time prayer of salvation. You ain't going to heaven that way. He's gonna say, get away from me. I don't know you. Now that's in no way condemnation. What it is, is an invitation. He's saying, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Hebrews, he talks about coming to the throne of grace for grace and mercy to help in time of need. So it is not a condemnation. It is not a condemnation saying, you just don't know me. Get out. It's an invitation saying in every way that you are hungry, in every way that you are thirsty, Come to me. Come to me and taste and see that I am good. And in every way that you put the effort in, you will bear the fruit of knowing. And it will go richer. And it will grow deeper with each step we take on that journey.
dance a new dance like David.